Welcome to season one of the Comfortably Hungry podcast, where yesterday's dinner is tomorrow's history. If you're a peckish person who is curious about the history of food and drink, then you're in the right place. I'm Sam Bilton, a food historian, writer and presenter, and each season I will be joined by some hungry guests to discuss a variety of topics centred around a specific theme. It can't have escaped your notice that Britain, and indeed much of the world, is in a pretty rubbish place financially speaking. Just about everyone is feeling the pinch from the cost of living crisis at the moment. So that is why I have chosen austerity as the theme for this season. Now I'm not here to provide money or energy saving tips, as there are plenty of other podcasts and websites doing that very well already. What I plan to do with my guests this season is look at how people have coped or reacted in times of austerity in the past. We'll be exploring everything from food riots, heroic ingredients and the origins of some popular energy-saving devices. Although we are living in straitened times, there is no reason why the tradition of the comfortably hungry potluck supper can't continue, especially as the dishes provided are virtual after all. They may well be on the frugal side, but they will undoubtedly be delicious. So to whet everyone's appetites, I've invited my guests to bring along a virtual dish inspired by their topic. Today, I'm joined by fellow food writer Liz Trigg, who hosts the original Home Economist podcast with her mother Val. We're going to be chatting about a very particular form of slow cooking, which has been simmering in the background for at least 150 years in Britain and America, although apparently Norwegian housewives have been using this method of cooking long before it first came to our attention. I am, of course, talking about haybox cookery, something that both Liz and Val have had first-hand experience of. Could you tell me a bit more about your podcast then, please? Of course. Yeah. So um, the original Home Economist is a um, podcast um, that I record with my mum and it's really bringing back those those elements of home economics from the 1950s, which my mum studied as a domestic science um, student um, and bringing those really up to the 21st century um, and because mum and I both trained as home economists we have quite a lot to talk about even though they're in different decades. Many years ago I found a copy of Haybox Cookery by Ambrose Heath in Camilla's bookshop in Eastbourne. It's a slim volume of less than 100 pages. It has a daffodil yellow cover with a drawing of a steaming casserole sitting in front of a box of hay. In truth, the purchase for the princely sum of £3 was made more based on the author's name, who I had grown rather fond of through his other works like Good Food, rather than the subject matter itself. After a cursory glance at the recipes, I surmised that this quirky book was probably of little practical use in the 21st century. It has unobtrusively sat on my bookshelf for over a decade, quietly minding its own business, and possibly would have remained undisturbed had the world not been plummeted into a financial crisis. As the name suggests, haybox cookery involves placing partially cooked food in a box lined with hay, although other materials with simmer insulating properties can be used. A dish is prepared on a hob and brought up to boiling point, and usually cooked for a short period at a highish temperature, before being transferred to the haybox. The hay helps harness the residual heat in the cooking vessel. It's a great way to prepare things like stews and even porridge that benefit from slow cooking. 
Hay boxes were particularly popular during the World Wars, and authors like May Byron provided instructions on how to use them during these periods of conflict. You can find a link to a short film produced by the Ministry of Information in 1940 on how to make oatmeal porridge in a hay box in the show notes, along with an early diagram of a hay box. This is what Margaret Johns Mitchell had to say about hay boxes in the Fireless Cookbook published in 1909. Does the idea appeal to you of putting your dinner on to cook, then going visiting, or to the theatre, or sitting down to read, write or sew, with no further thought for your food until it is time to serve it? It sounds like a fairy tale to say that you can bring food to the boiling point, put it into a box of hay, and leave it for a few hours, returning to find it cooked, and often better cooked than in any other way. Yet it is true, Norwegian housewives have known this for many years, and some other European nations have used the hay box to a considerable extent, although it is only recently that its wonders have become rather widely known and talked about in America. The original box filled with hay has gone through a process of evolution and become the fireless cooker of varied form and adaptability. Ambrose Heath's book was originally published in 1961. My friend Jenny Ridgewell and author of the wonderful memoir I Taught Them to Cook told me she had to show her home economics students how to use a hay box during the 1970s when we also suffered a cost of living crisis. So hay boxes weren't simply a wartime phenomenon. I mean, your mum must have taught hay box cookery then. Well, she studied hay box cookery, yes, and taught it in her early years when she first started um, at um, when she first started teaching. Yes, she did. Yes, she did. And also she was also brought up um, um, on a farm where they used the hay box. Um, it was one of the things that they did. I mean, it was certainly in the interwar period exactly. between the, the First World War and the Second World War. I think it's when it had its heyday, if you like, in, in heyday, this country. Yeah. Yes, it's heyday. Yeah, sorry. Excuse <laughs> the pun. I, I love it. I love it. You've got to so use was, that. Yeah. So why do you think hay box cookery is being revived in the 21st century? I think it's this issue around residual heat, which is what I've really focused on recently. Um, and it's I think it's because it's going one step beyond the electric slow cooker to have an analog slow cooker, really. And it, it, it's the resourcefulness, I think, of us having to use every bit of and, you know, save every bit of energy that we, ca- we can um, and and using that to its best you know, using that rather than having to add extra energy through electricity or gas. I said that hay box cookery was popular during the World Wars, but actually fireless cooking may have been a thing much earlier. Medieval historians Constance Bartlett Hyatt and Robin Jones came across this recipe for cooking without fire thought to date from the 13th century. Instructions for cooking meat without fire. Take a small earthenware pot with an earthenware lid, which must be as wide as the pot. Then take another pot of the same earthenware with a lid like that of the first. This pot is to be deeper than the first by five fingers and wider in circumference by three. Then take pork and hens and cut into pieces and take fine spices and add them and salt Take the pot with the meat in it and place it upright in the large pot. 
Cover it with a lid and stop it with moist clayey earth so that nothing may escape. And then take unslaked lime and fill the large pot with water, ensuring that no water enters the smaller pot. Let it stand for a time it takes to walk between five and seven leagues and then open your pots and you will find your food indeed cooked. Lime, also known as calcium oxide, reacts with water to produce slate lime, which is a chemical compound calcium hydroxide. A considerable amount of heat energy is released during this reaction. A league is about three miles or just shy of five kilometres, so to walk between five and seven leagues would be 15 to 21 miles. Assuming a person could walk four miles per hour, this is around four to five hours cooking time. Obviously, this is not exactly the same method as a hay box, but you can see the germ of the idea for fireless cooking in this manuscript. A fragment of what was thought to be a medieval fireless cooking pot has even been discovered in the grounds of Monmouth Castle. Fast forward some 600 years or so, and you start to see references to automatic cookery appearing in scientific journals like the New York Medical Journal. One article provided details on the self-acting Norwegian cooking apparatus, which was exhibited at the World's Exposition in Paris in 1867. By 1918, May Byron claimed that some people declared they had been perishing in the snow before they discovered the invaluable hay box, while others simply couldn't be bothered with this mode of cooking. As with all innovations, hay box cookery was not without its critics. One of the criticisms or historical criticisms about yeah. hay books hay box yeah. cookery yeah. is that it destroyed the vitamin content of food uh, during right. the prolonged cooking time. Yeah. Now, do you know if there's any truth in that or is it is that just a bit of a myth? I think it feels like a bit of a myth because actually um you have you're keeping you're keeping everything within your pot anyway and it's not a, a very high heat it might be when you start off but actually it's it's not a very high heat so I I don't know I don't know whether that's actually true but it feels like a bit of a myth to me. So what were the main benefits to using a hay box? Well, the chief benefit was fuel economy. Margaret Johns Mitchell was bold enough to state that it could save up to 90% of the fuel used in conventional gas cooking, although the savings would be less if wood or coal were being used to start the cooking process, as they can't be so easily extinguished. Late 19th century estimations put the saving between 40 and 70%. There were economies to be gained in terms of labour required too. Although gas ovens had been knocking around since the first half of the 19th century, celebrated chef Alexis Soye had state-of-the-art gas stoves installed in his kitchens at the Reform Club by the 1840s, their usage was by no means widespread. Many people still used wood or coal stoves, which meant a fire had to be maintained throughout the cooking process. By utilising a hay box, this element of labour could be removed. Margaret Johns Mitchell noted that the hay box also reduced excessive heat in the kitchen during the summer months and kept offensive cooking odours contained and improved the flavour of food. And how is the flavour of food cooked in the box compared to conventional cooking? Is it good, better or worse? (laughs) Well, I think this depends on what you're cooking. And I think with this method instead of trying to shoehorn recipes that you might cook on a day you know just any recipe work with recipes that benefit from long slow cooking 
because then you're um, you're enhancing the flavor of the recipes and the food rather than trying to make something work that actually won't be great in a hay box. So what would be the best things to cook then in a hay box? So obviously, I've been cooking with a modern version of the hay box with with the with the Wonder Bag. I've, I've cooked some great curry, vegetable curries in it. I've also cooked quite a lot of chicken in it, but chicken on the bone, um, and and also bigger pieces of chicken, um, because recently when we had the we had our workshop, one of the one of the attendees was concerned that in the hay box process, the food, the the meat or chicken, whatever, wouldn't get up to temperature. And she was concerned from a food safety perspective. But my experience is that actually the chicken, it, it just melted. I've also cooked a bean, beans and lentils in it, which work really, really well. Uh, but I think those long, slow cook things work really brilliantly. Portability was another benefit, although given that one publication stated that a hay box could weigh anything between 18 to 50 pounds, we may question this statement today. Luckily, modern iterations of automatic cookers, like the Wonder Bag mentioned by Liz, are much lighter. It's interesting when you read some of the older texts, particularly the ones that were published around the First World War, one of the one of the things... Oh, well, let's go of, back, yeah. Yeah, one of the benefits is apparently yeah. that... Uh, convenience because you can obviously put your porridge or your um exactly. your soup in the hay box or your yeah. stew and then you yeah. can obviously go out and do other things it frees up the leisure time even even one book I read said that it would yeah. it would it would dispense with the need to have a maid entirely which makes well me laugh. that's another well and not having a maid is really important it's quite interesting that whole maid thing though because with mum talking about home economics you know they did used to have maids to help mm. i think what was really interesting that came up in um our discussions with the attendees the other day was was um how i was originally introduced reintroduced to this process is that um a friend of mine ha- goes camping in her camper van so she makes something in the hay box or whatever and takes it with her. And and then when they get to wherever they are, supper's ready. So it's it has got quite a lot of um, today's applications. Um, I think it's really interesting. Earlier this year, Liz held a residual heat workshop with Community Cutlery in West Yorkshire. I was curious to find out how modern cooks reacted to this mode of cooking. So obviously the people that attended the course were quite keen to use this as a method of cooking going yeah. forward. Yeah, yeah, they, they were. They were very keen on it, actually. And what we did as a little experiment is we eat, they, I got them each to make a hay box using different materials for the insulation. So obviously we did the, we did the traditional hay and then we also did one with newspaper and then we did another one with sort of um uh, brown packaging which has got holes in it it's it's something that you get quite regularly when you get deliveries of things that are packed but over a, an hour um we we kind of realized that it was the brown paper packaging that kept the heat most successfully in that short period of time it was it wasn't scientific but it was quite interesting is it easy to make one from scratch well we were very i mean it was very rudimentary what we did well <laughs> you know? i mean I, I guess it would be though if you think about yeah. the make do and mend 
uh, sort of mentality of the Second World War, certainly. That was, yeah. you know, you yeah. had to make do with what you had. Admittedly, with probably people <laughs> had more likely to have a packing case or a tea case than um, exactly. we do nowadays. But uh, yeah, exactly. I think that I think the key thing with the, all of this is as much insulation as possible and also um to make sure that the top is covered and in fact we had such fun because one gentleman on the on the course took off his jumper and he wrapped that round as well because he thought it needed an extra layer and i thought that was brilliant um just use what you've got now would straw be okay to use as um, insulation or does it need to be hay I think hay works better because it's more, it's thinner and it right. compacts much, much more easily. If you think of hay, it's quite hollow, some of it, isn't it? And it's all about the insulation and keeping it as packed as you can. So there's no reason why you couldn't try it, but I do think hay works better. Aside from fuel economy, what are the other benefits of using a hay box in the 21st century? Is it, um, can it make consumers greener, for example? It's that lots of reports I've read recently have sort of said, suggested that it's a greener way to cook. Well, it is. It is because actually the only um, heat that you're, you know, the only energy that you're using is at the beginning. And I've discovered that actually you don't need to heat it you know you don't need to cook it for a really long time um before you put it in the hay box you've just got to make sure that it comes up to the boil and it simmers so so really it you know I think it's literally been about sort of 15 15 to 20 minutes max um and so yes absolutely absolutely it's greener um you have to be a bit more planned but I, I definitely think it's greener I guess the other point to raise is that you already mentioned the concerns about from a uh, food safety perspective is that if you're worried, you can always bring the food back up to boiling Absolutely. point, can't you? Absolutely. And that's 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 kind of, again, a few things that we were talking about in our workshop. Um, my personal view is I actually prefer food um, from a taste perspective at temperate anyway. Um, so for me, it's perfect. Um, as long as you're, I suppose, as you're, as you're, as you're, as you're confident with the food safety side of it, that that is that I guess that's important. So, what would be the barriers do you think to using a hay box today? What would put people off of using this? I think, as you say, when you're making your own, you've got to have you you know you've got to have the right the the right insulation and the right kind of box. Um, and you've got to have you've got to be prepared, you know, that it's going to take a long time. Because I think it's about three times, three times the length of time of normal cooking time. I think that's the mm. kind of way that that that's been that, that I've discovered as well. Um, and um it's it's kind of learning also what works because I did try a pork dish and it didn't work as well as my chicken. And so I think it's choosing the right, choosing the right recipes as well. And knowledge, because in, in that respect, you know, obviously, if we've got some knowledge around food and cooking, um, uh, if you don't really know what cooks well over a long period, I think it's it, it, it's it's having that knowledge, really, that's going to be one of the barriers. The Wonder Bag you can obviously buy on Amazon. Um, yeah. Other retailers are available. Are available, um, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, you can buy um, direct from them as well, yeah. And I know one of the, I mean, it, they're used quite widely, aren't they, in the in developing countries? 
are they are they worth the investment? Do you think they're about sixty pounds? Does that sound about yeah, right? Yeah, I, I think I think they're about fifty two now, and they often do they often do offers if you buy them directly from Wonderbag. Um, and you know also that when you buy one, they give one to somebody else, which I feel is also something that that makes me feel good about buying one. And I think I've been using mine a lot, so for me, I think it I think it probably is worth it. Um, and as I say, again, a lot of, of of discussions that I've had around the Wonder Bag is that or or or, or cooking in this way is that people who are, are kind of going outside and, you know, having, you know, I know wild swimming, you know, foraging, bushcraft, um, it keep, kind of feels that it fits with that as well. I just wonder with a hay box, depending on what size you make it, whether that's going to be as portable as the old Wonder Bag type approach. Now we come to my favourite bit of the podcast when I find out just what delights my guest is contributing to the season's virtual and humble potluck supper. What virtual dish will you be contributing to the podcast season's uh, feast? Fabada which is something that I have loved since I uh, was born in Spain. And it's a long, slow-cooked bean. Uh, it's got black pudding um, and um, lots of pimienton. And it tastes better at least three days after it's been cooked. Brilliant. Sounds delicious. And where can listeners find out more about your own podcast and your work? On Instagram. So on um, the original Home Economist Instagram, Liz Trigg. And what's next on the horizon for you? Um, more of more exploring of things from thing, home, economic, home, home economics from the past. So we're going to be looking at fashion um, and fabrics next in a workshop. That sounds fascinating, Liz. Thank you to Liz Trigg for chatting to me today about hay boxes and cooking with residual heat. You can find links to the publications and products mentioned in this episode in the show notes. Also, don't forget to check out Liz and Val's podcast, The Original Home Economist. And remember that you can find Liz on Instagram at Liz Trigg. Next week, I will be posting about my own experiences of cooking with a hay box on Substack. In the meantime, you can see a quick video of me making a hay box on my own Instagram feed at Mrs. Bilton. And thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please let me know on Twitter at SJF Bilton or Instagram at Mrs. Bilton. That's with two S's. And if you really love this episode, please rate and review it on Apple. It really does help listeners locate and engage with the show as they explore new podcasts. If you'd like to discover more about my work, pop along to sambilton.com where you'll find details on my books on gingerbread and saffron, as well as the Comfortably Hungry blog. You may also want to subscribe to the Comfortably Hungry newsletter on Substack, which complements this show. It includes recipes and more detailed notes from the season's episodes. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify and Apple, among other platforms, so that you never miss an episode. This podcast was created, researched, produced, recorded and edited by me, Sam Bilton, with music and sound effects provided by zapsplat.com.